on this episode of I'm There For You Baby. It's hard to take care of yourself. What is it? What is it? Tell us what it is. I got to tell you, I love pockets. Entrepreneur Nicole McDonald. First of all, I have to say, I love the name of your podcast. I'm there for you, baby. I, I tried telling that to my mother. It was not successful. But... We have nicknamed the sash bag the anti-purse. We called them pocketbooks. The dogs are eating the dog food. I gathered some friends. We went in the backyard, lined up some sewing machines, and sewed a bunch of samples. So who in their right mind would buy a newspaper? I'm starting to have second thoughts after that introduction. <laughs> this is why art's a rock star. Physically, it's been a whole different experience in the last year. You should have run Barbara's campaign. That's a whole other <laughs> subject. Right? Oh! Uh, no is only a way station to yes. He said, well, I don't know why, but if it was this easy, somebody smarter than you would have already done it. Barbara's muted, so of course she's not participating. <laughs> Barbara? Do it again. I'm There For You Baby is produced in San Diego, California, America's finest city. Presented by HyVN. You can now shop cannabis with March and Ash on our new app. Get an eighth of flour for just $5 when placing your first in-app order today. Free delivery or curbside pickup on thousands of your favorite flour, edibles, carts, and more. March and Ash. Shop cannabis. Listeners, we've already heard from many of you with good suggestions. Please keep them coming. Send them to info at I'mThereForYouBaby.com. Welcome to another segment of I'm There For You Baby, the Entrepreneur's Guide to the Galaxy. I'm here with Barbara Bree, my co-host, partner, and wife. And I think I'll tell you a little bit about what's on my mind. I, I know you can hardly wait. So what I notice about entrepreneurs, and I think that's endemic to them, is that they are, if you will, driven and passionate. That's, that's nice, but they can also be neurotic and nuts. And so, for example, if your parents couldn't love you, they just, how is it, and they always found me inadequate, and how could I be worthy of anything, you can appreciate that taking a moment, perhaps, to love yourself is not easily learned. Now, this is actually an important sentence. It, it's hard to take care of yourself. And entrepreneurs in particular, because they are so driven, they view, you know, um, a warm blanket or a hot cup of tea as being weak and, and, and slowing up. So a woman, Alice Boyce, Dr. Boyce, writes a book called The Healthy Toolkit. And she wants us to talk to ourselves with compassion. And I'm gonna tell you, that's not so easy. I mean, um, it's really hard to take care of yourself. And, and it's actually important. So I'm, 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 I'm in favor of what she says. Um, she is supportive of, of, of allowing yourself to be okay, small, a, a little bit of love. Now, now, most of us entrepreneurs, myself included, on a personal level, I know this dilemma. In other words, if it's good news, then I'm only lucky and I don't deserve it. And if it's bad news, I fully expected it and I had it coming. That is the nature of neurotic entrepreneurship. And so she says, let's do a little bit better of what she calls a gentle and supportive nudge. It does not mean taking a hammer and hitting your fingers. It means a little bit of, you know, you could have an extra piece of chocolate. The other thing she talks about entrepreneurs, she says, well, all of us 
uh, we're sort of driven by perfectionism. So, uh, you, you know, you don't have to get it perfect the first time. I, I tried telling that to my mother, it was not successful. But for the rest of you, I would argue it, it's okay to come back to it. And, and then she says, <clears throat> she says, uh, pay attention to what others say that soothe you. So she wants to, she wants to allow the possibility of, of words that are relief. Uh, I pointed out to her that soothing is not the same as I think you're hot. So you gotta be a little bit careful in, in, in the workplace. At the end, I think that self-compassion, allowing yourself to have a little bit of, of care for yourself is really important and powerful. And one of the things that she says, and I am a big fan of this, is you gotta talk to yourself. You gotta say out loud that it's okay. Now, you can't just think it. You, you gotta allow yourself and then say the words whether it's on the walk or riding your bike, to, to make it real and hear it. But at the end of the day, as I would say, be kind to yourself, it won't hurt that much. Barbara? Key theme of our show is that today, everyone has to think like an entrepreneur, whether it's in their own business, a large organization, or a nonprofit. And one of Neil's favorite sayings is, you don't know what you don't know. And our guests demonstrate a willingness to ask tough questions, to challenge the status quo, and to think in new ways. Now, Neil, um, here's a business that you probably haven't thought about. Handbags or purses. If you grew up on the East Coast like I did, we called them pocketbooks. They're a big business. In 2019, almost $11 billion of handbags were sold in the United States. So they, this, this, that means like not only there's man bags where I, well, where I, I can... Well, I don't know who bought them. I think this is women. And listen right. to this. One survey found that American women spend on average as much as $160 on a handbag and own about 11 of them. 10% of women have more than 20. And you know what, wait a minute. I, I actually know about this. This is the Birkin bag. It costs like twelve thousand dollars, isn't that? That's a handbag. Yeah, but I don't have one of those in my closet. So, so. here's the question I'm going to ask Nicole, which is: If you spend a thousand dollars for a handbag, what do you got left to put in the handbag? Right. Well, so our next guest, you know, got into the handbag business, even though there's you know a lot of existing companies out there. Listeners, I'd like you to meet entrepreneur Nicole McDonald. Uh, who was not happy with the existing choices. Uh, welcome to I'm There For You Baby, Nicole. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Uh, thanks, Neil. Thanks, Barbara. Um, first of all, I have to say I love the name of your podcast, I'm There For You Baby. Um, I feel like that is, it's just such a great thing to hear as an entrepreneur. <laughs> like, that someone's there for us. I love it. Right. Yeah. So you started um, your handbag company. It's called Sash Bag. What void were you trying to fill? What I was looking for was something that actually was not a handbag. We have nicknamed the sash bag the anti-purse. So it's really kind of the opposite of a handbag um, where, you know, most, most bags are designed the same way, uh, where it's, you know, essentially a big container 
uh, filled with all kinds of things. It's heavy, it's bulky, it's cumbersome. And what I noticed is even the crossbody bags, uh, you know, that weren't on your shoulder, you know, hurting your shoulder and making you lopsided, they'd bounce around on your hip or they'd cut into your neck. So just after years of searching for a better solution, uh, I decided to create something that was a different design. Um, so it's kind of like a deconstructed handbag. And the way it's designed is there's 10 pockets that stack up the front and the back of the bag. So it wraps around your torso, uh, similar to like a Miss America sash. That's how we came up with the name sash. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. So it's really like a sash that wraps around your torso and there's pockets that are stacked up the front and the back. So you take all these belongings that were in your purse before um, and then you essentially spread them out. So the weight is evenly distributed. So you still this have is, the- This is great. I got to tell you, I love pockets. I mean, I am <laughs> all in about having pockets because I got lots of little stuff. And, and I'm, I'm, you know, I, I don't have lipsticks. Well, Barbara doesn't know that exactly. But <laughs> I think the idea of pockets is brilliant. Yeah, so Nicole, this wasn't your first handbag company. You had one before this. What happened to that one? And what did you learn from that experience? Yeah, so the, I, you know, as mentioned, uh, creating a better handbag has been something that's been a, um, a, a goal of mine and a challenge of mine for many, many years. Um, and I started a, a product that was a more organized handbag. So it was kind of like going in the direction that I am now um, with more pockets and it had, you know, removable interiors and, you know, lots of really cool talking points to it. Um, but there were a few things that went wrong with this company. One, I launched it in 2008. Um, so it was a bad time to launch a company in general. Um, but the other thing that um, didn't go well with this company is I wasn't focused on the right things. So I had a pretty dangerous combination of skills at the time. I have a background in product development and graphic design and marketing and communications. So I'm really, really good at designing things and making them look great um, and getting a lot of support and excitement around them. So I got so much support. I got, you know, people were really excited about this new handbag line that I created. Um, so I believed that it was on the right track because people were telling me it was on the right track and they were excited about it. Um, the thing that wasn't happening is I wasn't making money. So I know this probably sounds super, super obvious, right? And also in hindsight, but it's funny when you have those like entrepreneur blinders on where you just believe so much in what you're doing. Um, so that was my, that business I chalk up to like my lesson and all the things not to do. <laughs> which is, you know, put all this planning in place and all this marketing and all these things in place first before you find out if strangers who don't know you and don't love you and don't care about you are willing to give you their so, money. So, yeah. Nicole, this, this is an echo of a guy named Steve Blank who is famous for having done, wrote a book called The Lean Startup. And essentially yeah. it says this. It says, you tell, you tell your customer, the Lean Startup basically says, talk to your customer. In the software business, you call up your customer, you say, I've got a product that'll do this. Does that sound great? The guy says, yes. Then you need to ask, and will you pay for it? No. In which case, you don't really have a product. So the, the point of this talking to the customer is not only do you love it, not only the features that you want, next question is, okay, I made something that you say you love, do you really love it enough to write me a check for $68.09? That is the key to every entrepreneurial adventure. 
Right. And what did you do differently with sash bag? Yeah. So what I did differently was I took it nice and slow and I made sure that, uh, you know, to Neil's point, you know, strangers, right? Because like, it's easy to sell stuff to your friends and your family and people that love you, right? They'll write you the check for $68 and whatever cents. Um, but I took it out. Um, so I, ma I made some samples just at home. I gathered some friends. We went in the backyard, lined up some sewing machines and sold a bunch of samples. <laughs> and we took them to a trade show. And um, I sold, you know, I talked to buyers that were walking by and they were handmade samples. And I was like, if I can get people on board with these and I know I'm on the right track. And I wound up selling $20,000 in samples in that trade show, uh, which is more money than I made in two years of my other business. So that's when I knew uh, that I was on the right track. And it wasn't until then, until I had already, you know, designed the bag and gone to the trade show and done all that and got, you know, those purchase orders that I was like, okay, now I'm going to start this business. This is and great, I, Nicole. They, the equivalent of this, the famous phrase is the dogs are eating the dog food. Exactly. So how did you raise money? You know, now you think you have a business. How do you raise money to be able to start producing, you know, handbags in bulk? Yeah, so I realized pretty quickly when I got back from the trade show that $20,000 was not enough money to start a business <laughs> as soon as I tried to go into production. So I knew pretty quick I needed to get some support. And I ended up just doing uh, friends and family fundraising, you know, which for a small amount of money, I needed $50,000. Um, so I raised it from a colleague of mine, actually, who I had met through uh, Harahub. And um, yeah, so she was my initial investor. And it, it was a $50,000 investment. Um, up front, and then it was another 25 and another 25 over the course of the year. So it's about $100,000 in total that I raised in, um, in that I raised to give up equity for. Mm -hmm. And then I did, once I was selling the product, we did $125,000 in sales our first year. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, we're kind of like hit the ground running, started making money right away, which gave us um, enough leverage to get loans. Mm -hmm. Then we used, um, you know, debt financing for the rest of the business. Oh, hold on, hold on. This is important. So I'm going to ask you the hard question. So you sold $125,000 worth of handbags. What is the margin? If you were on Shark Tank. You like Kevin O'Leary. Yeah, O'Leary. I mean, Mr. I'm Mr. Wonderful <laughs> for Miss Bree. So here's the question. I sold handbags. How, what's the margin? So the way they'd ask it is, what was the cost to produce all those handbags, Nicole? Um, you know, I don't remember exactly, but what I will tell you is it was di very different then than it is now. Um, so the first about year and a half of the business, we had so many manufacturing issues and we wound up um, manufacturing in Los Angeles. So we were actually, it depended on if we were selling a wholesale or retail, but when we were selling wholesale, we were actually selling the bags for $5 less than we were making them for. So we were actually taking a $5 loss on our production cost um, that first year. This is a classic case that's taught at Harvard, which is if you lose a penny on every widget, can you make it up on volume? But when you sold direct to consumer at uh, farmer's markets or on the internet, you made money. Yeah, then our gross profit margin was about 50%. That's mm -hmm. fabulous. You got 50 gross margin, you got a business. So now, now yeah, now sorry. it's different, obviously, because now that back then we just didn't have our manufacturing together. And it took, you know, a, like I said, a good year and a half to get it set up. And so now our gross profit margin is more around 60, 65%. Right. And I'd like to have you talk about the manufacturing in India in a few minutes and how that worked. 
But next, you know, I know you raised more money. Uh, you use Kickstarter. Could you tell us about how you use Kickstarter and what the results were for you? Sure. Yeah. So I've done four Kickstarter campaigns. The first campaign I did was in 2016 after I had already had the business for a few years. So I didn't go like straight out the gate and go straight to Kickstarter because I've seen over and over and over, you know, entrepreneurs get on Kickstarter and, you know, put these really beautiful campaigns out there that don't um, get any legs, you know, they don't go anywhere. Um, and so I, you know, observe that and learn from that, that you really do have to drive your own campaign. You have to bring the people, you have to bring the the traffic to your own campaign. Um, so I waited until I had built that up. So I had been doing uh, markets and festivals and just was out in the community, meeting as many people as possible, building up my newsletter list. So by the time I launched my campaign, I had about 4,000 people on my email list. So when I launched it, it went out to all those people. Mm -hmm. So the campaign was really successful. Um, we were trying to raise $29,000. We ended up raising, I think, 81,000. And then that, that's what kind of took me into this over the hump of being able to increase my, my production. And after I did that for a couple of years, I needed another, I needed to get over the next growth hump, right? So I did another campaign and my second campaign by that time, the people from the first campaign plus, you know, building upon my community at that point, I had a, you know, pretty sizable community. I launched a, a second campaign that was, um, I really utilize the community to tell me what they wanted. So I put up polls and this is all, this is all on Facebook. I put up polls asking people, what do they want to see? What sizes do they want? What colors do they want? And then I listened to them and I created this campaign that had all these fun options that people were asking for, launched it. And just, this was just completely organic through my community, word of mouth. We raised $250,000 in the first 24 hours. Wow. And that campaign so wound up raising 1.2 million um, in 30 days. So wait, wait a minute, Let, let's just review the bidding here for a minute. You listened to your customer. Huh. Yes. So big, uh, big you, are the, you are the poster child for every entrepreneur who doesn't. Meaning, listen to what you just said. I went to my customers and I said, what do you want? They told me, they agreed to then pay for it. Imagine dogs eating dog food. Right. Told you the kind of dog food they wanted, the can they wanted it in, the bowl they wanted to put it in, and you raised over a million dollars doing this. Exactly. BB, right. I'll buy you a sash bag, but I'm not going to tell you what to put have, in it. I already have one. I think I have two. I'll buy you another one in red. <laughs> okay. Well, that's an issue right now. So, I mean, Nicole's business sash bag is humming along pre-COVID. What were your revenues in 2019? Our revenues were three and a half million. And then what happened and what happens with the pandemic? How does that so impact you? Pandemic hits, factory shuts down. And where is your factory? It's in India. Yeah, and India was not messing around. <laughs> so, you know, they shut everything down. Um, it was shut down for a couple of months, few months. And so then- you, So you have no product. You can't, you, you don't have anything to sell to people. Right. And we had a little bit of inventory left over, um, but that, you know, we sold through that pretty quickly um, because we're, you know, we were on track. We sell about, you know, three, three to 4,000 bags a month. Um, and we don't hold very much inventory. You know, usually we, we turn things around really quickly. Stuff comes in half the time, by the time it comes in, it's already sold because we've let people know it's coming. Mm -hmm. So we don't hold a lot of inventory. So we ran out of inventory pretty quickly. And then the factory, you know, even when it started to open back up, it could only open at 30% capacity. 
-hmm. Well, that's one issue, but the other issue is the supply chain. So, you know, getting the leather, the zippers, all the other things that um, go into making one bag is various suppliers. Um, some of it comes from China. You know, all of our hardware comes from China. There was a huge backlog there. We had to wait months just for the zippers to come in. Um, so then by the time all of that gets assembled and then the factory was shut down again, right? So they started to open up and then they had to shut down again because there was an outbreak. So it was, uh, it was that, it was like a little bit of opening up and then shutting down and then opening up, you know, for the course of the year. So we got no new inventory last year, zero, none. Wow. Yeah. So wait a minute, I, I, I got to put on my uh, different hat here. Okay. You got a business. So the questions I'm going to ask you are, this is classic Shark Tank, okay? What do you want to do? Meaning, do you want to go out and raise three, four million dollars? Do you want a strategic partner? Do you need more? What don't you have? What keeps you up at night? So you've reached a point where you are, you are the poster child for exactly where a startup gets to what I'll call the, the, the inflection point, the Series A. So do you want to just, is it a, a lifestyle? Do you want to grow it to 100 million? Do you want to sell it to Prada? So what's the next thing you think about and do you have a mentor to help you think about it? I love all these questions and they're so timely because you're absolutely right. That's exactly where I'm at right now, where I've had, you know, years to see like what's, what this product is capable of. And then I had some breakdowns to go, to take the time to go, okay, this is actually kind of a good thing. Cause I can really examine like, where do I want to go from here? What do I need to have things go differently? So um, I don't run into these issues again. And um, I am going to be doing a fundraising round. So I'm doing a million dollar round. And I do have some amazing mentors, uh, Sylvia Ma, Vidya Dinamani, and Allison Long Patin. They're coming in. Um, they're helping me. Um, and we're going to do some fundraising and restructure the company in a way that we don't have this. Okay, so I'm going to tell you this. I don't know if you're right or wrong, but I'm going to willing to bet you $10 that a million dollar raise is the wrong number. Have you thought carefully about how much? Because sometimes, classically, entrepreneurs pick a number. I, I'm the, on the board of a company where the guy, the CEO says, we're going to go raise $2.5 million. And I say, why? Why don't we raise five? He says, well, based on nan and nan and nan and nan, I think it's two and a half. I said, but what if? And he says, well, and after they run some numbers, they decide they're going to raise five. So I don't know if a million is right or not, but I'm willing to bet you that it's not because it sounds like you picked it. And what I want you to do is go back to your mentor. Yes, Barbara, darling. So is this a Kickstarter round or an equity round? No, this is, this is real money. Debt, debt this is, no, this, no is, this is venture. This is a real investor, right? We're going to be launching on WeFunder because we have a very passionate base of customers. We get this question a lot. People often reach out to us and ask us if there's a way to invest in our company, if they can buy shares in the company. And since we're not a public company, it's something I've always been like, yeah, no, I don't... I, we can't think about that right now. <laughs> so um, I just found out about WeFunder a couple of weeks ago. What is it? What is it? Tell us what it is. It's essentially a, a crowdfunding campaign, but instead of uh, raising money to deliver something like some kind of product or good or service, you're actually selling shares in your company. So, but it shows up as one uh, shareholder on your cap table, no matter how many people back it. So it could be oh. 100 people, it could be 5,000 people, but it still shows up as one. And you only, you, you get to decide how many shares and at what value, uh, you, you know, you're willing to give up and what you want to raise. And then once it's met. Yeah, it's I, I've done, I'm on the board of a company that did WeFunder, uh, it's e-commerce. Um, they raised 600,000. They went out to get a million. 
I'm going to suggest to you that, look, Sylvia and Allison are really smart. So I think, Neil, we should stop. I mean, um, Nicole is getting advice from the top women angel investors in San Diego. That, you know, our listeners may not know who Allison and Sylvia are, but. Yeah. Um, and, you know, to answer your question, Neil, I'm totally willing to be wrong about the amount. And we have done quite a bit of work to get to that. And I don't think we're done. You know, I, I think there's mm -hmm. definitely still some more conversation to have. So it might change, uh, but that's, that's where we're at right now. Yeah. So Nicole, you have a wonderful story. Uh, is there any last piece of information or advice you'd like to uh, give to our listeners if they're starting a business? The advice that I always give, because I, I do often have people reach out to me and want to know how to build what I've built. Um, and there's a few things. One is to, and I know we touched on this a little bit already, but just to make sure that you have product market fit. I know it sounds very obvious, but it's so easy as an entrepreneur to step over that when you really believe in something. So just to really take the time to make sure that you are selling the right thing to the right people. And you might be surprised. You might be just going after the wrong people, uh, but you have the right product or vice versa. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, taking the time to do that. And then the other thing that I just cannot stress enough is being vulnerable and authentic. That is really where things shifted for me in my business is when I was willing to uh, be vulnerable in front of my customers because I ran into issues right off the bat, manufacturing stuff where I couldn't fulfill things, you know, to customers that I had promised. Um, you see it all the time too with Kickstarter campaigns where something goes wrong and then the founder goes and hides and, mm -hmm. you know, and the customers get really upset. So you would be amazed at how nice people are, how forgiving they are, how patient they are. If you just communicate with them and you just be real with them and honest about what's going on. That, that's that, terrific. Yeah. yeah. Nicole, how many people, how many people work at the company? Today? Right now, at the beginning of the pandemic, there were 12 of us. Right now there's four. Got it. Right. So Nicole, your entrepreneurial journey is, thank you for sharing it. I know it's going to continue. You're going to be very successful. Uh, you have really um, overcome a lot of adversity to get where you are. And uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you, Nicole. I'm Nicole McDonald, the founder and CEO of Sashbags. And you're listening to I'm There For You, Baby, the Entrepreneur's Guide to the Galaxy. Nicole McDonald is really a monster talent. She is a real CEO. And I'm also going to tell you, though, that she is facing a really difficult and important decision. Whether you raise 500000 or Kickstarter or a million, you really got to think strategically. How big a business? Who are the competitors? Do you have a patent? Can you be knocked off? And, and my, I know nothing about bags, but I'm going to tell you that my instinct is she needs more than a million and she needs a monster partner because what this is now is marketing. She's built something that people want and she's got to be able to expose it to a uh, hundred million people, not 10,000 people. So this is this moment. And then the question is, do I own 90% of the company or 40% of the company? So she's entering the whole space of ownership, strategy, money, and how big do you really want to be? Right. Well, I love Nicole's story and how authentic she is, how she acknowledges the mistakes she made in the past, 
how she's open to being mentored. She's seeking advice from people who've been there and done it. Uh, and I you know, expect uh, great things from her going forward. Uh, listeners, don't go away. Coming up in our next segment, we'll talk with Art Castaneras, the publisher and CEO of La Prensa, San Diego's original Latino community newspaper. And we'll talk with him about why he bought a newspaper when most of them are losing money. This is I'm There For You Baby, presented by IVN. Do you have a business, nonprofit, or campaign that needs to break through the communications clutter? For over 10 years, IVC Media has developed a suite of digital tools, data sets, and creative techniques, all to help corporate, government, and nonprofit organizations like you deliver authentic, innovative, and effective communications. Our teams in San Diego and Tijuana can help you overcome the most challenging communications projects in any language or location. Visit us today at ivc.media. The COVID pandemic has hit America hard. Nationwide, Black individuals have seen 2.6 times greater infection rate than their white counterparts. The news is especially frightening for African Americans who are at a greater risk of severe complications from COVID-19 due to underlying conditions such as heart disease, diabetes, and obesity. I'm Dr. Shirley Weber, the Assemblywoman from the 79th, and I'm encouraging everyone in our communities to do their part. Get tested, mask up, and avoid gatherings. Visit blackcovidfactsd.org. Welcome back to I'm There For You Baby, The Entrepreneur's Guide to the Galaxy. I'm Barbara Bree, and I'm here with my co-host and partner and husband, uh, Neil Centuria. Neil, you know the newspaper business has been tough. It's changed a lot since the internet shook up the media world and how we get our news. Newspapers all over the world have experienced declining readership and revenues and are slashing their staffs in order to stay afloat. So who in their right mind would buy a newspaper? Our next guest is Art Castaneras, the publisher and CEO of La Prensa, San Diego's original Latino newspaper that he bought five years ago. Welcome, Art. Hi, good morning. <laughs> I'm starting to have second thoughts after that introduction. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So, Art, I think it would be great for our listeners to know a little bit of your background before you bought La Prensa. Yeah, that's great. Well, I was born and raised here in San Diego. I grew up in Chula Vista, uh, lived in the same house until I was in college. Um, and I'm a product of, of down the kind of South Bay area, right? Chula Vista, National City area. Uh, but I got involved in politics when I was 17, accidentally. I had a high school teacher and she, her uh, son was in, was a political uh, in office and I didn't even know what that was. And she suggested maybe I go down and intern during the summer between my junior and senior year. And 13 years later, I still was working for the same person. I ended up getting hooked on politics. And so I grew up in politics. So I went to UCSD during that time, but um, I stayed working for the legislature. I worked for the California state legislature for 13 and a half years. And I left when I was 30 and I thought I knew everything in the world. So I went out and I became a political consultant. And during that time, during the time I worked for the legislature and then mostly when I had my own consulting firm, I ran uh, dozens and dozens of political campaigns. And in one year, 2006, I had 11 campaigns at the same time. 
Uh, three were for mayors, and then the rest were smaller offices. Wait, wait, and, hi, I, whoa, whoa, Art, what was the scorecard? 11-0, 6 and 5? I, I lost one of the 11 that year. That's enough um, to get into the Super Bowl. That's a 10-1 that's a and one record. Yeah, I, I've worked on 74 election nights, and I've, had, uh, I've only lost four. Uh, so I, I had a, a very good record as a political consultant. Uh, well, you know, may, 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 maybe Barbara, you should have run Barbara's campaign. That's a whole other subject. <laughs> oh, heartbreaker! I don't do that anymore. I don't do. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. But but you've so got talent. So you got out of the. So you got out of the political business, uh, and when what did you do, or what? No, did you well, do I did. Well, what happened was I realized that I was only affecting one outcome at a time. I was working on one. Uh, the issues related to one race at a time, whether it was assembly races or city council, whatever it was. And I wasn't really informing the public about the rest of what was going on. And so at the end of, um, after a few years of doing that in 2015, I had an opportunity to purchase La Prensa. The original owner had passed away. His son was the publisher and he was at the end of his career and he was going to shut it down. And La Prensa has been around when I bought it. Uh, it was his 39th year. And it's an institution, not only in the Latino community, but in San Diego. And I, my background obviously was in journalism, but what I thought was that if I could take my political expertise and the things that I've seen and my understanding of how government works and how much the population in general doesn't even know what's going on downtown or in Sacramento or in Washington, if I could use my skills to translate that to the public, that that would be better than doing one campaign at a time. So I took a leap and I purchased La Prensa, never having written an article before. And so do you first, think that, uh, has La Prensa been successful in the fake news business? Uh, we don't do fake news. It, it, <laughs> we don't do really fake news. How can you possibly yeah. be successful? I mean, oh, sorry, go ahead. You know, one of the things we decided to do was, it's so hard to put this content out every week that most newspapers and, and small papers rely a lot on either news services or a lot of other contributors, and they run a lot of other people's content. And so then you have all these different mixed messages coming, different philosophies, as I call it, a, a moral compass, right? And so what I decided to do when I bought it was, we don't run anybody else's content. 100% of our content is our own content that we generate, we edit, and it's our voice. It's our view of the world, right? And it's been really hard, it's been really hard to do. The thing that I was most shocked with, I write a piece called Perspective, basically like an editorial on whatever I want to write about that week. And I've written about local things and Second Amendment and First Amendment, all kinds of things. And all the years that I worked in politics, I used to write things for other people, speeches and backgrounds and things. And I would hear my own words on TV or at a speech. And I thought I always thought it was funny, but they were never attributed to me. They were always my boss or my candidate. When I started writing my own perspective, and it has my picture and my name on it, people would send me emails and text messages agreeing or disagreeing or making comments about it. And I became very self-conscious about it because people were now judging my own work and my own thoughts. And it took me about a year to get used to doing that. Now I really enjoy doing it. Yeah. It's, it's, it you get comfortable being criticized. It, it's good for us. <laughs> I want to tell you that what you clearly demonstrate in La Prensa and in you, who you are, your persona, the reason that people read it is you are authentic. Mm -hmm. That is the power of the media today, whether it's personalities or journalists, or if you're authentic, you can have an audience. So let's, let's. That's hard to do, yeah. I yeah. appreciate that. I, and I agree, you are definitely authentic. 
So does La Prensa support your family? Does La Prensa pay the mortgage? Or do you have other businesses that do that? No, luckily I have other businesses. And what I've committed to the team at La Prensa is that I don't take any money out. Whatever we generate, we spend. And we spent it to grow our readership. When I bought the paper, it had a very small social media presence and online presence. We are now much bigger online than we are in print, even though we still print the paper. It's printing and delivering a paper is an old 19th century business. This is go going back to Joseph Pulitzer. You have to print it on a big machine and truck it and deliver it to, to thousands of locations. It's really hard to do. So we've only printed tens of thousands of, of, of copies a week, but we have hundreds of thousands of visitors a week online. Mm -hmm. So in the last five years, we've become more online. Our reach is we get people from Europe, from South America, Central America, uh, all over the world that hit our website every day, every week. So we've become much more global. And really, I want to make it into a regional uh, outlet. There's no reason why La Prensa San Diego only has to write about San Diego content, mm -hmm. because things that happen in Washington affect the Latino community and the community at large in San Diego. So we do not pigeonhole ourselves into only writing about local stuff. Great. So I'd like to ask you one more question before we take a break. And after the break, I want to talk about some of your other businesses. How has COVID impacted La Prensa? It's been really hard. We used to deliver to 540 locations around the county, all the way up from, starting from National City, San Isidro, Chula Vista, all the way to Oceanside, uh, Vista, um, El Cajon. Um, and a lot of those places were closed. We went to a lot of little restaurants and shops and things. And so we have scaled back our distribution to only a few locations. And like I said, we mostly do it online right now. COVID has been, it's been devastating. Uh, luckily, our advertisers have stuck with us and they know that the, the content is important, a lot of eyeballs. And so we've been able to get through it, but physically it's been a whole different experience in the last year. Right. Well, you know, uh, you know, I'm a journalist from my early career. Uh, Neil actually did one year of journalism school at the University of Missouri. He writes a weekly column for the Union Tribune. Uh, and uh, this is a great story. Uh, listeners, please stay with us. We'll have more from I'm There For You Baby and Art Castaneras after the break. This is I'm There For You Baby, presented by IVN. The COVID pandemic has hit America hard, but it has devastated underserved and economically challenged communities of color. Nationwide, black individuals have seen 2.6 times greater infection rate than their white counterparts. The news is especially frightening for African-Americans who are at a greater risk of severe complications from COVID-19 due to underlying conditions such as heart disease, diabetes, and obesity. I'm Armand King, co-founder of Paving Great Futures, and I'm encouraging everyone in our communities to do their part, get tested, mask up, and avoid gatherings. Get the facts on COVID-19 on how you can best protect yourself, your family, and your beloved community. This message is brought to you by the Multicultural Health Foundation with funding from the County of San Diego in support of the Live Well San Diego vision for healthy, safe, and thriving communities. Welcome back to I'm There For You Baby, the Entrepreneur's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is a rock star, Art Castaneras, who is the publisher and CEO of La Prensa. But now we're gonna talk about all the other businesses that he has also created. Art, what's your mantra? Uh, hi, Neil. Uh, my, well, I did a TEDx talk 
uh, two years ago now in uh, Carson City, Nevada. I do a lot of work up in the north part of Nevada. And I was invited to do a TED Talk on what I do. And the title of my talk is my mantra, The Importance of Ignorance in Innovation. And I give three examples that have happened in my career that came from my ignorance in different fields. And so I'll do them really quickly. One was in solar. Uh, I run a company that's a green energy company. And I didn't know much about solar. I got into it by accident. But when I first started looking at the contracts, so these are all contracts for building what they call on-site or distributed generation. So this is not building a big solar farm in the desert and shipping power. This is building them at a location that's going to use the power. And when I got into it in early 2008, all of the contracts that existed were based on the utility price of energy. And so they would price the solar based on how much you would have otherwise paid at the utility company in, in short. And I thought that was a crazy model <clears throat> because you're attaching the production of solar, which doesn't have any inputs. There's no energy costs that go into it. They were connecting it to the cost of energy at, coming out of a power plant that uses natural gas or some other kind of input. And so those prices fluctuate up and down. And so I created a contract where I priced it just based on the CapEx, the expenditure of that machine. And I went to banks trying to finance it. I went to Deutsche Bank, Wells Fargo, Credit Suisse, some of the biggest banks in the country that were doing solar at the time. And they all told me I was crazy. Nobody does it that way. And I said, yeah, but isn't this a better way to do it? And they said, no, you're crazy. This this will never work. And a big financier here in San Diego, who I won't name because I don't want to embarrass him, um, I went to him and asked him for help to help me put it together. And I started to explain it. And I was only about halfway through my pitch. And he said, stop, this doesn't work. And I said, what do you mean it doesn't work? How do you know that? He said, well, I don't know why, but if it was this easy, somebody smarter than you would have already done it. <laughs> you love that. <laughs> I thought, well, so I'm too dumb to have figured out some better way to do it. Well, it turns out it was a better way. I built a better mousetrap. We did a first contract and it became public. Well, let me tell you, when someone walks up to your door now and offers you solar with no money down for a set cost a month, that's the method that I came up with in 2008 that everybody said wouldn't work. It's a lease model. And it does work because solar, you spend money on it one time and it runs for 40 years. It's like any other machine. And so the reason I was ignorant was I didn't come from the utility business. I didn't have that, the, the paradigm of kilowatt hour times some, some arbitrary rate. I love this story. I, so I, I love that. when you can kind of whack the, the existing system and it's just a great story. It, it, it works. And it worked again. I did it in artificial turf business. I did it now. I'm doing it now in biofuels where we have a technology that we're, we're, we're going to deploy that can make jet fuel for commercial airliners out of cow manure. And they told me that wouldn't work. And here we are. We're about to, to be able to, to market that. So, um, you know, again, so my mantra is ignorance. Ignorance doesn't mean you're stupid. Ignorance means you don't have all the information. So you can be very smart and be ignorant in the rules of chess. doesn't mean you're stupid. Um, so I don't think I'm stupid. I think I was ignorant in a lot of things just because I didn't come from that world. And that ignorance is what helped me get past people telling me no. I love it. I love I, it. I think this is great. And it actually fits with journalism art because as a journalist, you keep asking questions. You keep pushing 
to get to the story. Don't take no <laughs> Yes, you don't take no for an answer. And that's right. one of Neil's uh, favorite lines is relentless pursuit will take you further than good grades. Uh, <laughs> no is only a way station to yes. Uh, <laughs> Uh, yeah. In our first company, we were turned down how many times by uh, Patrikoff and company before they said yes? Three. Three. Three no's, and then we chased him down based on, based on talking about um, Shakespeare. The, yeah. the guy writing the check, a young guy, was an English major, which is what I was. And we sort of bantered about some lines in Shakespeare, and based on that, they wrote us a check for $7 million. I, I, I and you know what? I got an email from William. He wanted 10% of it. <laughs> I still remember that dinner, Neil. It was in the gas lamp. And you and uh, Tom just were batting around Shakespeare references. And it was quite something to watch. But that may have been one of the, you never know what's going to be the key in uh, building a relationship with someone uh, right. to get the money that you need for your company. Yeah. Well, Barbara, in one point, though, when you say about journalism, it is exactly right, though, because a lot of people have criticized me because I own a newspaper and I didn't study journalism, and my background isn't in journalism. And I just recently got criticized by the public spokesperson for a local elected official who used to be a reporter himself, and he said, I'm not a real journalist because I used to be a political guy. Ugh. And I said, you know, there are enough real journalists in town that study journalism that don't get to the bottom of important stories. So I think we have enough of those people already. What I think is important is that my background allows me to hear things differently. When politicians say something to the public, because I've been on the other side of the curtain in their arena, I hear things differently and so I ask different questions. And yeah. so we've done some stories in La Prensa that have been exclusive stories. We've, we've cracked a couple big stories. One we're working on right now that's still developing is a secret committee in San Diego made up of police and fire chiefs that for the last 16 years has spent over $200 million on equipment that the public didn't know about. Even some of the elected officials that voted on it didn't know that they were buying armored personnel carriers and riot gear and things that they never went to the public for. And nobody had ever written that story. We broke that story right before Christmas. And they were ignoring us, so we ended up filing a lawsuit in order to get to the bottom of the, of the story. They canceled the meeting and then now we're in a lawsuit against them demanding that they release all the information to the public. So all those journalists in town that studied journalism that have Pulitzer Prizes, nobody had written that story. And yeah. it was a little paper called The Prince of the Dick. This is why art's a rock star. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Yeah, and your background is great. You know what happens behind those closed doors. You know what questions to ask. You know where to go to get the information so that the public's aware of what's going on. Um, yeah. I think your background is perfect for journalism. And FYI, I never went to journalism school either. Uh, and I was a journalist. I, I did work on my high school paper and my college paper, but I never got a journalism. I didn't even do that. But, you know, journalism... Uh, what it's supposed to teach you is to ask critical questions, right. right? I learned it in a different environment. Just because it wasn't a journalism school doesn't mean I didn't learn it. And so I think that it does translate. My view of innovation and being ignorant is another thing that helped me in journalism. Right. So before we wrap up today, Art, uh, I'd like to have you tell our listeners uh, what advice you would give them if they Thought, think, are thinking about getting into the media business? 
after I, well, I'm going to, I do the same thing that I do in politics. In all the campaigns I've worked on, I've never talked a candidate into running because it's a difficult experience and it's something that I don't take lightly. So when a candidate comes to me and says, should I do it? I say, here are the pros and cons. When you decide if you want to do it, then I'll help you. But I'm not going to convince you. So I'll tell them that first. But if they do go into the business, here's what I would say. You have to be so loyal to the truth that sometimes it ends up coming out that it's people you know that, uh, that are doing the things that you're critical of. And so one of the things that we've done in our, uh, mostly in our editorials, uh, but in our articles as well, is that we, we put it out there and we don't just say one party said this, the other party said that, and leave it to the, to the reader to try to decipher what that means. We actually put it all together for people. And it's risky because we end up making enemies. We end up saying things that disrupts the status quo. And you have to be willing to take that. And so sometimes I write stories and my mom, who's always worried about me, mom is always a mom, right? Says, why do you try to make so many enemies? Why, do you, why can't you do things that are nicer for people? This is because the truth sometimes hurts. And if I make enemies, they're going to have to stand in a long, distinguished line of people that are already mad at me okay. before they can take a shot at me because... This is the business. I'm not in it to make friends. I'm in it to inform the public. Well, Art, we love that you're willing to challenge the status quo. Uh, that, that means you are a true entrepreneur. And thank you so much for joining us today on I'm There For You, Baby. Thank you, Barbara and Neil. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you. I'm Art Castaneris, publisher and CEO of La Prensa San Diego newspaper. And you're listening to I'm There For You, Baby. The Entrepreneur's Guide to the Galaxy. Art Castanera said something really important. He talked about the power and the value of ignorance. And he doesn't mean ignorance like stupid. What he means is the desire to look under the covers, to, to, to work hard at understanding the truth, to really not accept the status quo or what has always been done, but to be ignorant of or available to possibilities that haven't been previously considered. I agree, absolutely. It's been the key to art success in many different kinds of endeavors. Uh, listeners, if you have a suggestion for our show, uh, please email us at info at I'mThereForYouBaby.com and tune in next week for another edition of I'm There For You Baby, The Entrepreneur's Guide to the Galaxy. Thank you for listening to I'm There For You Baby, presented by IVN. I'm There For You Baby is produced in San Diego, California, America's finest city. You can now shop cannabis with March and Ash on our new app. Get an eighth of flour for just $5 when placing your first in-app order today. Free delivery or curbside pickup on thousands of your favorite flour, edibles, carts, and more. March and Ash. Shop cannabis. Do you have a business, nonprofit, or campaign that needs to break through the communications clutter? For over 10 years, IVC Media has developed a suite of digital tools, data sets, and creative techniques to help corporate, government, and nonprofit organizations deliver authentic, innovative, and effective communications. Our teams in San Diego and Tijuana can help you overcome the most challenging communications projects in any language or location. Visit us today at ivc.media.